It's good to be with you today and uh, to sing to God and to remember together uh, what Christ has done for us. And now it's our opportunity to learn from God, learn from his word written to us. It's good to be with you, especially on this national holiday, Super Bowl Sunday. May your team win. May God's will be done. How about that? Hey, in a couple weeks, uh, we're going to begin a series out of the book of Jonah for about five weeks. Maybe you've read that. Maybe you haven't. It's in the Old Testament. It's a great, great book we get to read through together and study. And of course, it's known for the great whale that swallowed Jonah. However, in a couple weeks, we're going to unveil. I'll just give you a teaser now. It was not a great whale. It was actually a great walleye. And so we'll tell you more about that then. Okay, but between now and then, we started a series last week called Encounters with Jesus. Pastor Eric was here and he talked about uh, the encounter Mary and Martha had with Jesus as they processed through the grief and the loss of their brother. Next week, uh, Pastor Todd will be here as he helps us understand the encounter the Roman centurion, the professional Roman soldier, had with Jesus as he was trying to figure out faith and trust and what all that meant. Today, what we're looking at is the encounter that Saul had with Jesus. Um, We're going to be in Acts chapter 9, the book of Acts. It's actually the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Luke recorded what's in the book of Acts. Maybe you've read it, maybe you haven't. We'll be in Acts chapter 9, so turn there if you'd like on your phone or in your Bible. But I thought it'd be good to give you a little background leading up to Acts chapter 9, give you a little context. I think that's important. So what we're going to do is begin with Acts chapter 1. Um, Let me just say to (laughs) the book of, (laughs) excuse me, the book of Acts is very much about the the birth of the church, the the launch of the church, the spread of the church. And here we are today. It all started in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, we actually read the very last words of Jesus before he ascends into heaven. And these are his words. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Nearby and far away in an ever-widening circle, uh, the church was to be responsible for representing Christ nearby and far away, around the world. And uh, we'll talk about what a witness means a little bit later on. Now that's Acts chapter 1. This is really the the commission to the church. Now in Acts chapter 2 is the birth of the church, and the Holy Spirit comes in a dramatic fashion. And then Peter gives his uh, first sermon ever, and as a result, many, many, many people uh, come to God through faith in Jesus. Then we could sort of group chapters 3 and 6 together. Uh, The church is still in Jerusalem or in the immediate surrounding area. It really hasn't gone very far, but more and more people are joining what's called the Way. At that point, they were not called Christians yet. It was called the way, and many, many people are becoming part of the way. It's, in fact, it's starting to, to grow so dramatically that the disciples who were given charge of teaching the Word of God could not adequately take care of the practical needs of the people, like the widows and so on. And so what they did very wisely, they identified seven guys who could be in charge of meeting those practical needs. And uh, one of those guys is is named Stephen. And Stephen was known for his uh, wisdom, uh, for his power, 
uh, for his grace. That's what it says in Acts chapter 6. And he was also known for being absolutely unafraid, fearless, talking about Jesus to anyone, including the religious leaders. Well, the religious leaders sort of had had enough of Stephen, and so they called him in to address the ruling council of the Jewish leaders called the Sanhedrin. And so he begins in uh, chapter 7 giving this address. He starts with the history of Israel and talks about how God's hand has always been on the people of Israel, how God has always guided the Jewish nation. And you can just imagine the Sanhedrin saying, yes, he is our God, his hand is on us, we're his favored people, and everything's going well. And then Stephen sort of steps over the line, and he looks them square in the eyes, and he says, you stiff-necked people. And God all along said he was going to send his prophet. Well, he sent his Messiah, the person of Jesus, and you killed him. At this, they had had enough. They rushed Stephen, dragged him out of the city, and had him stoned to death. And those who were stoning Peter wanted more, I guess, wind-up room maybe, so they took off their outer cloaks and they dropped them at the feet of a man by the name of Saul. Now, this is the first time we read the name Saul. It comes at the end of chapter 7. And so in chapter 8, we really don't read much about Saul, except for the first couple of verses, and this is how it goes. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout or through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen and with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Saul was out of control. Now, the rest of chapter 8, we don't hear about Saul. What we read about is the spread of the church out and away from Jerusalem because of persecution. Somebody once made the observation that the persecuted church is sort of like someone stepping on a tomato. The seeds go everywhere. And that's what happens to the persecuted church. Witnesses for Christ go everywhere. Maybe you know the story of the church in China now it's like 150 million believers, something like that. It's a crazy number. And it started under the heels of persecution. Many people don't know that one of the fastest growing churches today is Iran, which is very much in the news. But that church is growing there under the heels of persecution. Any place persecution has taken place, the church spreads. And that's what happens in chapter 8. The church is spreading now, Saul is not mentioned for the rest of chapter 8, but somewhere in the background he is lurking and he is strategizing, how do I stop the spread of Christianity? That brings us to chapter 9. Now, what we're going to do is read it in three parts because I think each part leads us to a question which we can try to answer. And this is how chapter 9 begins. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Let me just stop there for a second. I was trying to think, what, what does this remind me of? And maybe you know the story of Les Miserables, the, 
maybe you've read the book or seen the movie or seen the play or musical, and it's the story of this crazy police officer named Javert who is pursuing this man named Jean Valjean with this like relentless obsession. And that's the picture I have in my mind as I think of Saul who is absolutely, literally obsessed with hunting down these Christians, men and women and their families. The story goes on. So he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, which you may know is up in Syria. It's 150 miles north of Jerusalem, a long ways for Saul to go. And the reason he went there is because Damascus was a major city, a major trade route city. And Saul knew that if the message got into a major city like Damascus with trade routes going everywhere, the message of Jesus, like a squished tomato, could go everywhere. And he was determined to stop it. And it continues. And he was asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. And he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days. And he did not eat or drink. Let's stop there for a moment and try to answer this question. How does God bring someone to himself? Over the last month, I've spent some time interacting with missionaries and chapel-connected mission partners around the world. And I shared with them that we're going to be talking about Saul's encounter with Jesus. Does anything like that happen today around the world? Uh, the leader of Send International, which sends missionaries into unreached parts of the world, sent me some stories that are fantastic. I got some other stories, too. I can't read them all. In fact, I even edited these down because there's just too much to share. But I'll read to you one, one from uh, the Philippines, where there are many Muslim believers. And this, this story goes like this, from the Philippines. This is a, by the way, these are not old stories. These are fresh new stories. A formerly Muslim man was a university student, very poor, and so lived in the local mosque near to campus. He was instructed by the local imam, which is the the Muslim religious leader, to infiltrate the student Christian ministry on campus and convince other Muslims not to go near the Christians. One morning when he was cooking cooking breakfast, a radiant person walked out of the jungle towards him and instructed him to learn about Jesus from the student ministry leader. Eventually, he became a devout follower of Jesus and has led many others to faith in Christ. I could keep going. This is from Kazakhstan. Maybe you don't know that country. It's a large country just south of Russia, west of Mongolia. A Muslim named Nuran had a wife who had already turned in repentance and faith to follow Jesus. And he mocked her. And then he got terribly sick, but then he got better and said to his wife, Look, see what I have done without your God's help? Instantly, he became paralyzed. 
He had many moments to reflect. His wife explained who Jesus was, the Son of God who came to save him from his sin. And he mocked her even more, and he ripped up her Bible. And as he lay in the hospital bed, he felt like he was dying, and he began to ask forgiveness from anyone he could think of. He was about to ask Allah, the Muslim God, when the room filled with light and he saw Jesus standing in the room with a sword, and Jesus told him to repent and believe, and he did. And Jesus told him to stand up and walk, and he did. And both he and his wife follow Jesus today and are his witnesses. And that story goes on. The story of Muslims is amazing. There's a book that I, one of the best books I've listened to or read in the last five years called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabil Qureshi. And in this book, he talks about how there was a wonderful, wonderful Christian witness uh, who was his friend who talked to him about Jesus. But it took a dream that God gave him, numerous dreams, to help him move over the line of faith toward Christ. Um, Experts say that up to a third of Muslims around the world will tell you it took a dream, a vision, a miracle, something like that to help them move away from their faith toward Jesus. That's just, that's just Muslims. I also receive stories from Burundi, from India where there is much persecution, uh, from um, Mexico where, where the Bible is still not in the written language of some of the indigenous groups. You know, where the name of Jesus is not, where the Bible is not, where churches are not, where persecution is, it is not uncommon to hear stories of dreams and visions and miracles of people coming to Christ. And, of course, this has tremendous precedence in the Bible, you could start as early as Abraham in, in the book of Genesis and work all the way up to Daniel in the Old Testament and many, many others in between, dreams and visions and miracles. Go into the New Testament, and God, again, is calling people to himself or commissioning people or, 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 or bringing them to do something. And uh, you, you can start with Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, or Joseph of Joseph and Mary, uh, the, the Magi, the wise men, the shepherds. Cornelius, who eventually meets Peter, uh, Pilate's wife, John, who writes Revelation, all based upon a vision given to him by Christ. And then, of course, there's the story of Saul, which we just read. Now, in Saul's case, this was not a vision or a dream. He actually saw the person of Jesus, the post-resurrection, post-ascension person of Jesus, which, as a sidebar, was important for him to later be classified as an apostle, one officially sent by God. But it was this moment that Saul later would say is that it was the very thing that, that, that moved him to understand the depth of his sin and the shallowness of his own, of his own self-righteousness. To help him understand the, the necessity of moving from unbelief to belief, from becoming persecutor to pursuer, to move from death to, to life, from darkness to light. That's Saul's story. Now, does that happen today still? Of course. I just read you some stories. Now, here we are in Norwalk. We're in North America. We're very free to talk about Jesus. And there's Bibles in every variety you can imagine. There's churches on every corner. But still, are, people are still having encounters with Jesus, but not in those dramatic, sensational ways, much more maybe mundane. The other night, I, I met with 
the team members who are going to Cuba. And as at the start of the meeting, just so they could get to know one another, they know one another, they each gave a shortened version of, of how they became followers of Christ. And you know, nobody talked about a dream or a, or a vision or a miracle, but, but each one was clear about their own encounter with Jesus. How does God bring someone to himself? That's our question. So, somehow, God's Spirit gets our attention. When I was age 20, I walked into a funeral home to pay my respects, walked out, thinking about the brevity of life and the issue of eternity for the very first time. I thought this past week about Kobe Bryant, who died so suddenly, and how many people must be thinking about the brevity of life and about eternity. Or, or maybe someone is just enamored with creation, or someone is using the, the, the God-given reasoning abilities. Of course there must be a God. Or somebody, through tragedy or loss, is pressed to think about God. God can get our attention by His Spirit. And then that same Spirit, the same Spirit that gave birth to the church 2,000 years ago, the same Spirit that breathed life into Saul, the same Spirit of God who calls Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and animists around the world to Himself, that same Spirit of God is the one who gives people like you and me the grace to even believe. And then, you and I have to choose. It always comes down to a choice. Now, many of you have chosen to follow Jesus. Some of you are still wondering. That choice is yours. But God is calling, to him, calling you to himself. Whatever it takes. Some of us in this room have a very sensational story. Dream, vision, miracle maybe, and how we had that encounter with Jesus. Others might have a very mundane story like mine, but regardless, still the same, it is miraculous because God reaches into a spiritually dead life and then breathes life into us, moving us from darkness to light, from death to life. How does God bring someone to himself? Whatever it takes. We just need to choose. Now the story continues. It goes like this. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him in a vision. I have shown him a vision of a I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I have heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Let's stop there and answer this question. Who does God bring to himself? You ever wondered that? I'll start this way. A number of years ago, I was asked to do a funeral service. Uh, the church where I was in Akron, it's much like this church here. If somebody calls our church and says, can you do a funeral service for, some, for a loved one? We say yes, whether they're affiliated with the church or not. We want, to, we want to help. And so that was the case there. And I got called upon to do this funeral service. The family could not meet until like two hours before the service. So I met with them. 
uh, in this funeral home. I remember right where it was, sitting with them. And I can't remember the man's name, 50 plus years old, the one who was deceased. Let's just say his name's Bob. Forgive me if your name's Bob. But uh, Bob had passed away. I forget the details. But I sat with the family and I wanted to know more about Bob. And they gave me some things to say about Bob, but I never met Bob and they really didn't give me a whole lot. And then I said, well, tell me about his affiliation with church. Nothing. Tell me something about his belief in God. Nothing. Tell me something about his, his relationship with Jesus. Nothing. There was nothing at all. And I'm thinking to myself, well, this is going to be a very short service. I don't have a lot to say here, but I'm going to talk about Jesus anyways. Um, but they said, well, why don't you do this? During the service, ask if there's anyone there who would like to come up and say something about Bob. I said, okay, but I'm thinking in my mind, that can go really well or that can go really bad. And so during the service at one point, I said, would anybody here like to come up and say something about Bob? And so a lady came up to, to, to say something about Bob, and this is generally what she said. She was a bartender, and she said, Bob was at our bar about every night. Nobody could drink like Bob. Nobody, nobody could just, nobody could dance like Bob. Nobody could, I mean, he just, she went through all these things, you know, and, and uh, made him out to be a real rascal, you know. And, uh, and there was some laughter and all that. And I, but I'm thinking in my mind, what do I say now? Would anybody else like to say anything? So this guy comes up, and essentially what he said was, that we, Bob and I, we raised hell. We would just go out, and man, we just, yeah, and he just went on and on and on and on. And you can imagine, and I'm thinking, oh, what do I say now? And so would anybody else like to come up and say anything? And so there was a man in the back in a wheelchair and he rolled himself up front, and as he's getting closer, I see that he has a, uh, a, 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 a leather, a black leather uh, vest on with patches all over, long stringy hair, and he's in this chair, and I'm, you know, I'm thinking, this is going from bad to worse, and, but I realized I had just judged a book by its cover. And he wheeled around, and he talked to the group, and he said, a few years ago, my life was very much like Bob's life. And then I realized my life was going nowhere. I had nothing. But somebody shared with me how much God loves me and how Jesus died on the cross for my sins and wanted to forgive me and give me eternal life. And so I placed my faith in Jesus. That was several years ago. Now, he said a lot more than that. It was beautiful what he shared. He said, I want you to know, the day before Bob died, I went in to see him at the hospital and I told him my story. And I said, Bob, that can be your story. God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He wants to forgive you and give you the gift of eternal life. Would you believe in Jesus even now? And Bob nodded his head and they prayed together. And the guy said, I want you to know today Bob is in heaven. Along with the thief on the cross, <laughs> doesn't matter when you decide, he's with God now. And then he went to the back, and I stood up, and I thought, now I've got something to say. You know, it was really something. I looked out at the crowd, and they all looked what I felt inside. Are you kidding me? Did we just hear it? Didn't see that coming. The Bible is the story of didn't see that coming. You, you can start with Abraham again, who was raised in a pagan family of idol worshipers. You can talk about Rahab, the Gentile pagan prostitute. 
Uh, you can talk about uh, Joseph, a prideful young man that God used to save the nation of Israel. There's just too many to even talk about in the Old Testament. Then you get into the New Testament, and Jesus picks 12 guys, unlikely, unlikely guys, to change the world. And you think of all the others that, who Jesus rubbed shoulders with. That's the New Testament. Then you come to the story of Saul, and nobody saw that coming. Saul, are you kidding me? One of my favorite new characters in the Bible is this guy named Ananias. We just read about him. He's the one living in Damascus. He's heard about the persecution that's happening, and the Lord taps him. I want you to go see Saul. Lord, forgive me, but he takes people like me and throws us into prison. He takes people like me and allows us to be killed. Are you sure, Lord? Yes. Now, if you read between the lines in Ananias' words, sentences, this is what he's saying. Lord, there is no way a guy like Saul could go from persecuting people like me to pursuing you. Lord, there is no way a guy like Saul could go from unbelief to belief. There is no way a guy like Saul could make that kind of turnaround. There is no way. No way. Not Saul. Now Saul is an interesting study in humanity. and In a sense, he kind of represents the spectrum of humanity. Uh, let me explain what I mean. If you, if you think of like the worst of the worst over here, axe murderers, mass murderers, and so on here. But down here, you have like the best of the best, right? Now, now Saul, would you agree? I mean, here he is pursuing men and women who believe differently than he does and has them imprisoned and allows them to be killed. That's pretty nasty, wouldn't you agree? We would all say yes. But down here at this end of the spectrum, in his letter to the Philippians, he talks about he is a Jew among all Jews. He's a Pharisee above the Pharisees. He keeps the law as perfectly as he can. Many people would have aspired to be like Saul. He was a good guy in his own eyes and in the eyes of other people. Kind of represents all of humanity in a way. When I, when I became a Christian at age 20, uh, those who knew me at that time would say I was probably you know, somewhere here on the spectrum. You know, Somewhere here. And, and, and I, I, I never had anybody killed or killed anyone. Would you put yourself here or maybe here? Or maybe your past is really checkered and you're ashamed of a lot of things down here? This is the beauty of the entire Bible message that God has done for us through Christ what we could never do for ourselves. There is this giant gap between this person and a perfect God. There is still a giant gap between this best of the best and a perfect God. And Jesus comes and through his death on the cross covers the entire gap and simply asks us to believe in him. That is the good news. All we have to do is believe. Paul goes on to write later on. Saul, who becomes Paul, goes on to write later on. Anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone. Somebody who persecuted Christians like me. Somebody who was a Jew among all Jews like me. Somebody who has a checkered past. Somebody who thinks they're so great. We're all equally lost, but God 
wants to rescue all of us. That's the good news. That's why we gather. That's why we gather to celebrate the gospel. So a number of years ago in the church where I was before, uh, I remember there was a guy in the community, I forget the details and I can only talk about it in generalities, but there was a guy I knew who kind of, you know, I knew him out in the community and he didn't want anything to do with church, didn't want anything to do with God, didn't want anything to do with Jesus. No, that's not for me, not for me. I still befriended him, you know, tolerated Christians, but doesn't want to be one. He's the kind of guy that would say, if I ever came into your church, the roof would fall down. You ever said that? You ever heard somebody say that? And then there was that weekend morning where I look out and I see he's there. Who does God bring to himself? People like Abraham. People like Rahab. People like Bob. People like this guy. People like Saul. You know who else? The person you have in mind right now. A son or a daughter, a husband, a wife, a mom, a dad, a co-worker, a neighbor. And you think there's no way. There is a way, and I'll tell you why. Because God has wired every one of us to know him, to come to him. There's just all kinds of barriers between people and faith. And it takes people like us to be in their lives. Because God specializes in being, bringing people like them and you and me, to himself. It brings us to our last segment of the story. So Ananias went and found Saul, and he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight, and then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. Let's try to answer this question. Why does God bring someone to himself? Have you ever thought about that? I was talking to Ken Ross the other day, our middle school director in, uh, at the Sandusky campus. He and I just finished, it's a short book. We had just finished the same book uh, independently, did not knowing it. It's by a guy by the name of Viktor Frankl. He was a Holocaust survivor, a Jewish Holocaust survivor. And um, he was a psychiatrist and went on to write many books. But he survived Auschwitz, which, by the way, this past week was a 75-year anniversary of, of liberating Auschwitz. And he talks about being liberated from Auschwitz along with his fellow Jewish inmates. And he said, we were so thankful to be liberated. We were so thankful for the, for, for the freedom. But then almost immediately another question emerged in my mind and it emerged in the minds of all the others who were liberated. The question was, now what is our responsibility we're free, but for what? The other night, my wife and I were watching a, a movie, and featured in the movie was the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island, both symbols of freedom, but both are symbols of responsibility. You, you take two sides of the same coin. On one side, you have freedom, but on the other side, you always have responsibility. 
maybe you remember going through high school or college and, you know, finally you got the diploma and you're out, freedom! Oh yeah, responsibility. Or you're raised in your home, you know, and you leave town finally, you know, freedom! Oh, responsibility. It always works like that. Freedom and responsibility. You, you can't read through Saul's, who became Paul, one-third of the New Testament. You can't read any of his letters without getting the sense of freedom for which we are saved. Um, his very first letter is to, is to the Galatians, which is all about freedom. And at one point in the, in the book, it says, For freedom you have been set free. But you also cannot read any of Paul's letters without getting the sense that we have responsibility. The question is, what is that responsibility? Now, we could answer that question in a myriad of ways. We're responsible for many things as Christians, but... I would like to stay within the context of what we're looking at, the book of Acts. I would like to stay in the context of the story of Saul's encounter with Jesus to answer that question, what is our responsibility? It really takes us back to the very last words of Jesus, which launches the book of Acts, launches the church. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth in an ever-widening circle nearby and far away. We are to be as witnesses. That is our That's the simple answer to our, to our question. What, why, did, why has God rescued us? For freedom. But to be as witnesses. Someone asked me a really good question the other day. What does it mean to be a witness? And I think the simplest way to say it is that it means to be a representative of Jesus with our life and with our words. Now, we won't time to take time to look at it again, but did you see how the last part of the story, what, what, what Saul did? He was baptized, and immediately he went and started talking to people about the Son of God. Now, I am not Saul, and you're not Saul, and I'm not you. And you're not me, but together we are the church. And we are called to be the witnesses for Christ wherever God has placed us. As imperfect as our lives are, Saul was a brand new Christian, didn't know much, but he went and talked to people about Jesus. As imperfect as I am and as little as I know, I am still called to be a witness for Jesus. Where you work, where you live, where you play in your home, in your neighborhood, at your workplace. How, how does God bring someone to himself? Whatever it takes, by his spirit, he gets our attention, then he breathes life into us. We must choose. Have you chosen? Who does God bring to himself? People like me. Wow. People like you. People like Saul. But why does God bring us to himself? have freedom, freedom from the power of sin, from the presence of sin, from the penalty of sin, all of that, but also responsibility to be his witnesses. And that is the joy of being a Christ follower. Let's pray together. And now, God, thank you um, personally for rescuing me and bringing me to yourself uh, many years ago for impressing on my heart the joy of freedom 
and the responsibility. And I pray for all of us here. I pray for those here who maybe have never yet decided to follow you, that you would give them the grace and the wisdom to do that, the courage. There's no better way to go. I pray for loved ones we may have in mind who have wandered away from you, who, are, who seem resistant to you, and yet, God, we know that you have wired them to know you. Would you give us the help to, to love them and to speak openly about you, that one day they may come to you, God. Help us to be the kind of church that does exactly what Jesus said we should do, nearby and far away, be your witnesses. Thank you. So that others, so that others may have their own encounter with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.